Today's scripture reading is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. The Lord's covenant promised to David. When the Lord had brought peace to the land and King David was settled in his palace, David summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, here I am living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out in a tent. Nathan replied, go ahead and do what you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a temple to live in? I have never lived in a temple from the day I have brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now. My home has always been a tent, moving from one place to another. And I have never once complained to Israel's leaders, the shepherds of my people, Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar temple? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I chose you to lead my people, Israel, when you were just a shepherd boy, tending your sheep out in the pasture. I have been with you wherever you have gone, I have, and I have destroyed all of your enemies. Now I will make your name famous throughout the earth. And I have provided a permanent homeland for my people, Israel, a secure place where they will never be disturbed. It will be their own land, where wicked nations won't oppress them as they, did, as they did in the past. From the time I appointed judges to rule my people, and I will keep you safe from all of your enemies. And now the Lord declares that he will build a house for you, a di- dynasty of kings. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple, for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him. But my unfailing love will not be taken from him, as I I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time before me, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said. Thank you, Chris, for reading God's word for us this morning. Seems like every time Chris reads scripture, I give him a whole chapter <laughs> to read. <laughs> Sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing our series in the book of Matthew, uh, which we've been in for most of the year. Uh, so this is your last sermon in the book of Matthew. Uh, now, I want to start with a question uh, you can raise your hand to this one. Uh, how many of you know uh, the genealogy of your family? Like you would say you have a, I'm seeing some so-so, yeah, I know a little bit, yeah, okay, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Uh, not like 42 generations of your family, no, okay, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, for many of us, we can only go back a, a few generations. You know, we might, we might know who our great-grandparents are at the very least, but beyond that, you know, we, we probably don't have a great idea. Um, maybe we have some documents somewhere in our attic somewhere that has a family tree on it. You know, maybe we have one of those really big family Bibles with, with all the names in the front, right? Now, with the rise of the internet, tracing family history has become uh, a little bit easier. 
Right? We have websites like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. You know, those have their issues, certainly. Uh, but having the ability to send a DNA sample in somewhere and then having it come back to you with uh, some sort of uh, you know, relatives that we didn't know existed or some sort of heritage that we didn't know that we had, right? And part of that popularity is because, well, knowing our family history is important in some sense, right? Not just to know our family's medical history, though uh, that information is useful, <laughs> certainly, to know if we're, uh, you know, uh, liable to any conditions that might pop up, uh, but also beyond that, right? Knowing our family history is important uh, because it gives us a sense of identity and belonging, right? If we have a name, right, we can look back and see who also had that name in the past, we can know who we are, but we can also know uh, where we came from, right? And we do that by looking back at those who may have come before us. Now, over this Advent series, we've been looking at the origin story of Jesus, and we've kind of been going backwards through his origin story. Uh, now, this morning, uh, we'll be looking at the backstory. Uh, if we've already looked at Jesus' origin story, now this is all of those who came before him. We could think of this as the prequel uh, to Jesus' story. See, Advent and the good news of Jesus' coming is good news. And we talked about that last week. Uh, but it isn't really new news, in a sense. No one uh, really should have been surprised that Jesus came, because this was God's plan all along. Now, there had been hints along the way, right? Many prophecies that had come and spoken about him. And all we have to do is look back at those who came before Jesus, and we will see Jesus more clearly. Now, let me pray for us this morning, uh, and then we will take a look at our passage. Let's pray. Father, as we draw uh, this Advent season, uh, this year, uh, this sermon series in Matthew to a close, uh, God, we just thank you for uh, how you've taught us over the past year, what we've seen uh, to be true about you through your word. Uh, and Father, we just pray uh, that this morning uh, we would see Jesus a little more clearly. We would know him better and know of his love for us in a better and closer way. And so, Father, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Use me as you see fit in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Uh, that's where we'll be uh, spending our time together this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 uh, is the first page of the New Testament. Uh, and so uh, turn there with me. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, and I've split uh, those three sections, or those, uh, those verses up into three sections this morning. Uh, really, the, the text did that for us. But uh, first, we'll talk about seeing the Messiah from Abraham to David. Uh, next, we'll talk about seeing the Messiah from David to Babylon uh, in verses 7 through 11. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about seeing the Messiah in verses 12 through 17. 
Um, let me go ahead and read that for us. Uh, Nick, I only have one slide in there. <laughs> I'm hoping this will be helpful for you <laughs> as we go along. So hopefully uh, you can see that up there. Uh, it reads, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David was the father of Solomon, uh, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. All right. <laughs> Woo! I should have practiced that one. Oh, man, those names, they get you. Uh, so this is one of those passages of scripture that we look at, and we're just not sure what to do with it, <laughs> right? Uh, this is uh, just a list of names. That seems pretty boring at a first glance, right? Like, where do we even start to begin to understand what all of this means? Now, uh, the reason that we have 42 generations of Jesus' lineage uh, is due to a couple different factors. Now, first... Uh, people in this time period uh, were a lot better at keeping their historical records of their families than we are, right? In ancient Israelite culture, family was everything. Family was your inheritance, it was your identity, it was your occupation, it was your well-being, it was your social status. And so people kept track of who their ancestors were uh, because it mattered a little more to them. They were less individualistic than our culture is today. Now, I've uh, done a little bit of reading about this phenomenon. Uh, I have read a book called The Intentional Father, which is a really good book. 
Um, and in the book, the, the guy talks about how one thing that he did with his son was he planned a trip with his son back to see all of his family history as far back as he could go. Now, they were living in New York, and the guy was Australian, so that you know was kind of a much larger trip than many of ours would be. But took him to places like, you know, here's where I grew up. Here was our first house, right? Uh, here's where I went to school. Here is where I had my first job. You know, here's where I met my wife. Like those things, and just impressing them upon his son are important. Now, I, I don't know if, if you've heard about this, but there's another phenomenon going on in our world today where uh, families aren't buried together anymore. You know, families used to be centralized around one location, you know, that most of them uh, went to the same church, they didn't travel very far, uh, but now people travel and live wherever, and so you have family members that are, you know, buried at all sorts of different places. There's no centralized location. Now, this uh, is very different uh, from the world that Jesus lived in. Now, second uh, reason why we have 42 generations of Jesus' lineage uh, is because Jesus came from a very important family. Not just a very important family, but the most important family. Now, there's a reason uh, why the royal family in England has better uh, records of their family history than the Cosgrave family does, right? <laughs> They've been paying a little more attention uh, to those things over the years. Now, Jesus came from uh, the royal family in uh, Israel's history, the family of Abraham uh, down through King David and, and on and on, right? Now, because of this, better attention was paid to who Jesus had descended from. Uh, the third reason why we have 42 generations of Jesus' lineage uh, is because he was the Messiah. Early followers of Jesus cared deeply about preserving the tradition that they had become a part of. Right? They were meticulous about copying, saving documents, records of events from Jesus' life. They wanted to keep all of those things. And Jesus, uh, to us, and uh, just objectively, it was the most important human who ever lived. So everything surrounding him and who he was was kept. Now, a lot of it was destroyed, uh, but we still have some pretty good records. Now, the numbers are staggering of the historical authenticity of the life of Jesus. Did you know that there's more historical evidence for the life of Jesus than for the life of King Arthur? Uh, that's uh, one of my favorite facts. Uh, there are more copies of the New Testament from antiquity than there are of Homer's The Iliad. Uh, and only one of those is taught in schools. Um, so we could say the New Testament is more historically reliable than that book. Now, people in our modern world are constantly referring to uh, the Bible, to Jesus' story, and to Jesus himself as, well, he's just a character in a book. Now, his story uh, can't be a fairy tale. Right? He can't just be a character in a book. The problem with those statements are that they really have no historical grounding. When you take the process for determining whether something is historical and you apply it to Jesus and to the Bible, uh, you really will be astounded by what you find. And so uh, when people say that the Bible is just a fairy tale, that's uh, really reducing what is actually true about it.
Now, this is why passages like this are in our Bibles. Uh, they help to prove the historical reliability of it. Right? These aren't just made-up characters. These are real people that lived at a real time in history. And Matthew, uh, who was writing his gospel to a Jewish audience, uh, his Jewish audience would have read this, and this might have been one of their favorite passages of Scripture, because they would know who all of these people are, and each person would have stood out in their mind of, well, I remember this about this person, I studied about this person, uh, and they would see how the Messiah was to come from the line of David. And it all would have started to make sense for them. Now, uh, we're going to uh, go down through this list. Now, I don't have time this morning to hit every name. <laughs> uh, and some, you know, we have more uh, biblical passages about them than others. So we'll hit some of the most important ones. Uh, but hopefully we will see Jesus in each and every name in this section now at the end, we read uh, that this chapter or this section is broken up into three smaller sections, right? 14, uh, three, or three portions of 14, uh, which uh, mark significant uh, parts of Israel's history, right? You have 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So we'll, first we'll look at um, that first one from Abraham David. Now Abraham, uh, who we know as Father Abraham, who if you know the Sunday school song, had many sons. Uh, and God had said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's what God had said to Abraham. Uh, now let's revisit Abraham in light of Jesus' coming. Jesus himself would become a great nation. Not of an earthly kingdom, but of a heavenly one. Right, as we've gone over the book of Matthew this year, what did Jesus say? Uh, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. God blesses those who bless Jesus, filling them with his Holy Spirit if they've placed their faith in him. And God curses those who curse Jesus, separating them from himself forever if they haven't placed their faith in him. In Jesus, all families of the earth are blessed. Because in Jesus, all families of the earth can have salvation to eternal life in heaven with the Father. So Jesus is the new and better Abraham. Now Abraham had a son with his wife Sarah, whose name was Isaac. And Isaac, most of us are familiar with his story, uh, how Isaac was taken by Abraham up onto the mountaintop after God had asked him to sacrifice him as an act of obedience to God. Uh, but then the angel stopped Abraham short of doing that. But because Abraham acted in obedience, so Isaac would go on to lead a life of obedience to God. Now let's revisit the story in light of Jesus' coming. 
In light of Jesus, we see that this was not just a random act from God, but it was instead a foreshadowing of when God would offer his son Jesus on the cross. Only God would not stop his own son from being sacrificed. He would allow it to happen only so that Jesus could rise from the dead and so that we could have eternal life in him. Just as Isaac lived a life of obedience, so Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God, obedient even unto that death on the cross. Now Isaac had two sons with his wife Rebekah, one of whom uh, was named Jacob. Now Jacob's life was a struggle from the beginning, uh, a struggle with his brother Esau. Now Esau uh, was the favorite in that story. He was the one who was supposed to receive the inheritance from Isaac. And, uh, but Jacob uh, was tricky. And so Jacob had deceived his father into giving him the inheritance instead. Now, just as Jacob struggled with his brother, so Jesus struggled in a different way. Not against a brother, but against sin and death itself. Jesus, in the wilderness, in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, he grappled with the idea of what he had come to the earth to do. But Jesus, not through an act of deception, but instead through an act of obedience, received his father's blessing. His father's blessing, which was not land or money or livestock like it was for Jacob and Esau, but instead was eternity with the father in heaven, which is available to us as well. Now Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom uh, was named Judah, and it was Judah who actually uh, devised the plan to sell their brother Joseph into slavery, if you remember that story. Uh, but later on, Judah shows some, revo- some remorse over what he had done to his brother. Now, Judah had three sons, the first of whom was married to Tamar. Now, after the first two sons died due to their wickedness, and the third son was too young, Tamar became a widow in Judah's house. Tamar, later on, would deceive Judah into sleeping with her, and they would have two sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, those two sons, obviously, born into a situation that wasn't the best. But Jesus would go on to be called the Lion of Judah in Revelation 5, chapter 5. And unlike Judah, Jesus uh, would not give up his brothers and sisters to slavery, but he would instead give up himself to free them from slavery to sin. He would not be wicked like Judah's sons, but would be perfectly righteous instead. Now, a few other names stick out to us here from this first part. Rahab, the young Canaanite prostitute spy who helped the Israelites capture the city of Jericho showing that Jesus would save both the Gentiles and the Jews that true faith is evidenced through good works, and that when we come to faith in Jesus, our past is washed away. We see the name Boaz there. Many of us are familiar with Boaz's story. Uh, He's known as the kindred redeemer in scripture who would marry the widow Ruth, uh, whose husband had passed away. So Jesus would be our kindred redeemer. 
welcoming us into his family and redeeming us so that we can now rely on him and not on ourselves. And then we have the name Ruth there, the widow, married to Boaz, who showed us what it looked like to trust in God for his provision, even if it didn't come immediately. How God can change a life for the better. So Jesus trusted in God fully for his provision. It is through Jesus that our lives can be changed for the better forever. Next, we are a little further down. We read about Jesse, who had eight sons all of whom were rejected by God to be the king of Israel, but it is the youngest son, the weakest son, David, who would be chosen to be Israel's king. Now, we don't know much about Jesse from the Bible, but Jesse would be the beginning of what is really a period of prosperity for Israel. Now, so ends the period before the monarchy from Abraham to David and Israel, a time that started out promising with God's promise to Abraham, seemed to descend into chaos for a little bit there, uh, and then ends with some amount of hope for the future with Israel having a new king. Now hopefully uh, you're still following along as we move quickly uh, through these names. So let's look at that next section of 14 uh, from David to Babylon in verses 7 through 11. So we have David, who we are very familiar with, who we know as the man after God's own heart. The first of the true kings of Israel, ushering Israel into a time of prominence, militarily, financially, and spiritually, as David wrote many of the Psalms. But David, as we know, had his flaws. Most famous was his affair with Bathsheba, who is mentioned here, not directly. Uh, Some translations will put Bathsheba's name there. His condemnation from the prophet Nathan over what he had done. How much more was Jesus than David, God's very own son, a man after God's own heart? How much more was Jesus the true king that Israel actually needed? Jesus, who would, not lead, or who would lead not only Israel, but all of the world into a new period of spiritual prosperity. Jesus, who would not fall like David did into temptation to sin, uh, but Jesus would be perfectly obedient even to his death on the cross. Now David had a son with Bathsheba, whose name was Solomon, another famous biblical character, the most prosperous king that Israel had ever seen, uh, who would build upon David's foundation, as Chris read for us in the book of Samuel, uh, would build the temple in Jerusalem, bringing Israel to even greater heights of prosperity. Now Solomon famously asked God for wisdom, which God gave to him. Uh, But that promising start uh, took a turn towards the end of Solomon's life as he fell into adultery. Now Jesus, if we read about Jesus and compare him with Solomon, Jesus would be the truly prosperous king who would have ultimate wisdom because he was God's very own son. 
Jesus would finish his life out by dying on a cross. He would be perfectly faithful until the end, unlike Solomon, who fell into sin at the end of his life. Now, Solomon had many possessions, but Jesus had very few, showing us that life does not consist of an abundance of possessions, and that true riches are found in Jesus himself. Now, Solomon's son Rehoboam would be the next king, but under his rule, he would see the nation divided. Very quickly, Israel had divided after Solomon's death. Now, Rehoboam himself would turn against God, only to later turn back to God, but the prosperity under David and Solomon had come to an end. Now, Jesus, instead of dividing Israel, would unite the whole world to himself. He was the true king of the Jews, and Jesus would never turn himself against God, but would be perfectly faithful to the end. Hopefully you're seeing a trend here. Now after this period, there were many more kings in Israel, some of them good, some of them not so good. Many of them made foreign alliances with nations that they weren't supposed to align themselves with. And some even introduced idolatry into Israel, paving the way for others later to remove the idols from Israel. Now one of the best and most notable of the kings from from this section was King Hezekiah, who many of us are familiar with. Hezekiah was a model of faithfulness and trust in God. He led Israel in many great reforms in the nation, improving the nation immensely. And when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian armies, he prayed famously, and they were delivered from them. Now, Hezekiah did make one mistake in his life, though. Uh, He flaunted his riches in front of the Babylonians who had come to visit, uh, who would later come and sack the city and take Israel away into exile. Now, Jesus, in a similar way to Hezekiah, but in a more full way, is the perfect model of faithfulness and trust in God. Jesus tried to lead Israel in many reforms, though many did not follow him. But Jesus' death and resurrection show us that even when we are surrounded by our enemies, we can find deliverance through prayer. Hezekiah would have a son named Manasseh, who would go on to be one of Israel's worst kings. Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, though, would be one of Israel's best kings. It was said of Josiah that he walked in all the ways of David. Josiah called for national repentance, public readings of the law. Josiah cleansed the temple and cast down all idols before he died valiantly in battle. So Jesus, when he came to the earth, would call for repentance. And it is through our repentance before Jesus that our relationship with our Father can be restored. Now, Jesus came not to read the law publicly, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus would die valiantly in battle, but a battle with death itself, which he would win, ultimately, by rising again in three days. So ends the period before, or the period during the monarchy, the time from David to the exile in Babylon, a time similar to the first one that started out promising, seemed to descend into chaos, and then ended with some amount of hope for the future in Josiah.
hopefully you're seeing some trends here as we move through the entire Old Testament very quickly. <laughs> um, now, uh, the last section from Babylon to Jesus, we won't spend uh, much time here. There's a reason that we don't recognize most of the names of the kings here in this section. Uh, and there's a reason that we don't know much about them. This was a really dark time for Israel. Not only were historical records destroyed as part of the Babylonian exile, uh, things were not kept track of well because they were living in a foreign land. And people don't like to talk about this period from Israel's history. King Jeconiah I in this section uh, was the king of Judah when Israel was exiled to Babylon. And his grandson, Zerubbabel, was born in exile and would be the first king to take Israel back where he would rebuild the temple. Now Jesus, like Zerubbabel, would deliver us back from our exile from God into a relationship with him where he would not rebuild the temple, uh, but he would make our bodies a temple where he resides. Now that's a short summary of that section. Uh, in closing, there are really three things to gain from uh, all of that history, all of the names. Uh, the fact that we can see Jesus in all of these people uh, is certainly uh, present here. But there's a pattern, and hopefully you saw that pattern as we moved very quickly through. Uh, things started out good, seemed to descend into chaos, and then ended with some amount of hope for the future. So it is often with our lives, right? Many of us can see this own pattern of things starting out good, seeming to descend into chaos, and then uh, ending up good, right? So it was with Jesus' life as well. His history is similar to ours, and that makes him relatable to us. If you think that you came from a dysfunctional family, <laughs> which I'm sure many of us would say that we did, yes, so did Jesus, right? We've looked at many of these characters, and not all of them were good, right? Some of them were pretty messed up, <laughs> right? Um, and so it is with our own lives. These leaders were imperfect, right? All of these people had one thing in common. They were flawed. They fell short. Some of them more than others, yes. But they have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in their own way. So though Jesus is similar to them in the fact that he's related to them, he's different from them in another way. He would not sin. And so he would be the savior Israel was looking for all this time. He did what the others could not, provide true salvation for the people of Israel. Now this whole time, Israel had been looking for the Messiah, right? And each time one of these people rose up, they would ask the question, is this person the Messiah? And eventually they would find the answer would be no, until Jesus came. To Jesus we ask, is this person the Messiah? And the answer is yes. Lastly, God can use broken people to carry out his plan for the world. 
despite their shortcomings and their flaws, their many flaws of the people that we saw in this section, God still used these people from Israel's lineage to carry out his plan for the world. Now, this doesn't justify their sin or the wrong things that they did. But if anything, their brokenness simply makes Jesus shine all the brighter when he came. Because he is the perfect example of what these people were supposed to be. And so to you, so God can use your brokenness to carry out his plan for the world. Doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Doesn't matter what your family history is, where you've come from, how dysfunctional your family is, how uh, insignificant your family name might be. Jesus has given you a new name, a new identity. He has welcomed you into his family. And so you descend from Jesus's lineage because he has made you his brothers and his sisters. So God can use you despite your brokenness or how dysfunctional your past might be, but he can use you better if you place your faith and your trust in him and you allow Christ to fill up those spots where you are weak. This is what we should get from these 42 generations of Jesus's history. Let me pray for us as we close. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, just this time that we've spent together in your word. We thank you for this sermon series in the book of Matthew. Uh, God, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. Despite our brokenness, our dysfunction, you have chosen to save us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for that this morning, Father. We thank you, despite all... uh, that we may seem to lack, you have provided for us anyways. And so, Father, as we head into this new year, may we leave all of that behind. May we move forward with the the knowledge and the assurance and the faith uh, that Jesus has made us new. He's made us his brothers and his sisters, and that through Jesus, God wants to use us to achieve his plan in the world. So we thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.